Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby and as regular listeners will know, Ori Clark is a firm of both lawyers and accountants. One of its partners is Andrew Ori, my co-host, who noticed that the firm had so many interesting clients doing so many interesting things and he wanted to find a way of getting those interesting stories to a wider audience and the result is this podcast. So, Andy, good morning. It's eight o'clock in the morning. It's uh, wakey, wakey, rise and shine. Who have we got on the show today? Good morning, sir. Yeah, thanks, Dominic. We have the wonderful Richard Salm. Richard is from Melbourne, Australia. He is in Melbourne, Australia right now. He has done a variety of things. He's been involved in the armed forces and he's been a sort of serial entrepreneur who then really went into the industry of assisting entrepreneurs, you know, build up their businesses. And he's he's currently the head of uh, something called Startup Bootcamp, which you may have heard of in Australia. Uh, Good morning, Richard, how are you doing? Very well, Andy. Great to be here. I've listened to some of your uh, earlier podcasts, so uh, very flattered to be here talking to you both today. Well, thank you, mate. Well, thanks for listening. So, man, what, what's going on? What, what what are you up to at the moment? What's the, the primary thing taking up your time? Um, beers, summer, barbecue. Oh, um, completely something foreign to, uh, to everybody uh, listening in the UK. Um, I know what everyone's going through at the moment because we, uh, we were going through that about six months ago, but for us, um, over here right now, it's uh, turning up to the cricket, cricket, um, you know, COVID tests and things like that, and uh, and kicking off a new year. Um, we've just been through our our Christmas summer holidays, and uh, yeah, we're sort of relaunching into into 2021. Let's talk about uh, startup boot camp. I see it says it's the world's largest industry based startup accelerator program. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, good question. It means that. Startup Bootcamp was born out of Europe, whereas most of the original accelerators that were you know, born around that same time were funded via, you know, like LPs. So, you know, mentors investing in programs, investing in startups. And they were able to get, particularly in the US, like if you, if you got a lot of customers, you'd get, you'd get um, money um, coming into your company. Whereas in, in, in Europe, you know, there wasn't as much money, there wasn't as much risk capital. And so, uh, when the founders of Startup Bootcamp uh, ran their sort of second program, Lars Buch, um, and they were running them out of, out of Copenhagen at the time, like he and a lot of his friends were ex-Nokia and you know, they were they were leaving Nokia with large redundancy payments. Um, and so he ended up specialising the second ever Startup Bootcamp program in mobility um, and you know, still under the LP model. Um, but what ended up happening is, uh, and people said he was crazy, you know, like why would you only just accept mobile um, mobile startups when there's all these great startups that you can invest in. But by doing that, what he created was a, um, a community of practice in that industry. And as a result of that, you know, companies like Vodafone and, and others sort of turned up and said, hey, how can we get involved? Um, it was a bit of a light globe moment and sort of said, well, you can get involved by writing a big check and giving it to us. Um, and so, you know, like off of the back of that, uh, you know, the, the sort of startup bootcamp was the first program really to, to focus on um, industry verticals and creating community of practices um, in those industry verticals and really specialising um, and yeah, has grown along those those lines. And you're seeing a lot of other accelerators have, have, followed, have followed that model now. Um, and it's interesting to see where, where accelerators are going because like now, a lot of accelerators, because you know, corporates um, are setting up their own accelerators. So a lot of uh, independent accelerators, like outside of a corporate organisation, are now actually probably moving back to the LP model or setting up 
um, setting up their own funds um, that sit alongside the programs. Just tell us, what, what is an LP model? Yeah, so this is a limited partner. So this means that you, know, you invest and you get um, the upside of you know, the startups that are going through the program. How many startups would you say, like you always hear it's like 99% of them fail. I mean, I guess it all depends on how you term fail, but what's the success to failure to sort of done okay ratio? Yeah, um, like you said, I mean, typically what we, you know, typically what um, from the investment community would see is, you know, like of a portfolio of say 10, you know, like one goes and does really well, you know, two might sort of survive and wash their face, do really well, but may, maybe turn into lifestyle type businesses and um, the rest of them will will fail. Um, that's in, you know, like sort of technology startups. So these are people creating new business models, new um, sort of risky entre- uh, ventures. Um, so that's that's the sort of typical breakup that you know, most people are, are betting on. For, for startup, we've been around for, for 10 years now, like our success rate is around about sort of 70%. So, you know, seven is still operating. I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. One is, you know, like corporate partners are helping us pick startups. So they're, they're actually picking business models, picking innovations that they actually want to, to trial and, and commercialize. Um, but also to, you know, like uh, the vast majority of our startups have, have only gone through programs in the last four or five years. Um, so there's still time to flush through. And, you, you know, you're looking at around about, you know, five to seven year horizon um, from forming to to see whether or not uh, it's going to scale beyond sort of series A, series B and onwards. You know, the name of it's a startup boot camp's got a very like militaristic kind of sort of vibe to it anyway, you know, kicks people's ass, you know, it's got that sort of, um, and you've been in that world, you know, I, was, I had the honour of um, going, I think it was to your 50th or, no, it might have been your 40th, I can't remember. 40th, you know, and 40th. It, come on, mate, come sorry. on. I'm so 50th. fucking old now Je- myself, Je- it feels like, Jesus, you know, Jesus we're all, we're all attending wept. 60th soon. Um, you know, and you obviously held great, uh, you know, great respect um, amongst your peers in the in the British Army and stuff like that. And it's, uh, I remember you saying something to me that stuck with me ever since, which was, um, you can argue about, you know, who's got a good army or not. You know, as my history teacher used to say, the Italians can't fight for toffee and the French are only good when their pecker is up, is what he used to say, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, what makes, why are people prepared to go out into gunfire? Why are people prepared to, and you said to me, it's about the camaraderie. You said, you said the only fucking reason that you will go out into the shit is because your mate's out there, you know, and, and that's what bonds are sort of armed forces and stuff. I mean, you know, it strikes me that um, startup boot camp is part of it to sort of bring some of that, uh, I don't know, rigor, is that the right word? But the whole sort of slightly kicking people's ass to, to sort of toughen them up a little bit. Is that is that part of its culture at all? Or Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say like, I mean, it's making people getting used to feeling uncomfortable. You know, running an early stage startup is really hard work. You know, going through boot camp training in the army is really hard work. You know, you, you almost have to be broken down in order to to be, you know, rebuilt. And, yeah, you know, like that process is similar in uh, in a military boot camp, the process of, you know, breaking a team down, you know, um, you, you thinking you, you're better than what you actually are. And then, you know, you realising, hey, I'm not as, not as capable, not as smart. It's all about team. Like that, that that process that happens during a military boot camp is is actually quite similar to to an accelerator program. Break it down. The the, the I mean, in, in in the army, I guess it's the arrogance of your own ego, isn't it? But in in, in a yeah, startup, sure. it's more like 
you're probably quite young. You, you often are, and you've got a you, you've got you'll have this impatience that you believe you can do it in a year, and this arrogance that that you know. In a weird way, you've got to be arrogant to start. You've got to be crazy to do a startup anyway, isn't it? But you're trying to see if they've got the the metal for it, have you? You know, underneath it. For sure. I mean, Dominic Dominic just asked before. You know, like what is it one in one in a hundred that survive and make it? So yeah, you know, like the statistics are out there. I mean, our stats are a lot better because you know the numbers one one in ten that I gave you. Those are people that are actually getting invested investments. You know, there's there's the other eighty or ninety that are pitching for money that don't get any money. So statistically, like you have to be a moron to do a startup, you know? So you're basically saying I'm better than the next hundred people that are coming along. So you know the statistics and you do it anyway. So of course there's a level of arrogance to say that I'm better than the next 99 people that are coming along and I'm going to make it, you know? So there does need to be that. But at the same time, you know, like, and it's not just young people, it's, it's, I mean, the best entrepreneurs that we find are actually a little bit older. They're, you know, they're in the, the the 30s and 40s. They've been in industry. They understand the pain, you know, in, in that industry, and then they're going out and doing it. The young sort of kids straight out of university, uh, you know, like the the Mark Zuckerbergs, are definitely the uh, uh, the outliers. Particularly, and we focus on B two B startups. But regardless, you do have to be a little bit crazy. You do have to be very self-assured. You do have to be cocky. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that you don't know and either you're prepared to be moulded, but even so, like even if you do, even if you're prepared to put everything on the line, there's still a lot of pain there because you're going out and you're having 100 100 interviews or 200 interviews with a bunch of people that are saying, you know, no, we're not interested in that. And you keep persisting because you believe that the problem that you're focusing on is a problem worth solving. And, you know, you've got your, your wife or your... Or, or your husband or your boyfriend sitting you sitting over your shoulder telling you you're crazy, like all of your friends are calling you mad, like why don't you go off and get a, a decent job instead of, you know, mucking around and pretending to, to have a job in a startup. So you have all this noise, all this, all this negativity and, you know, you and your small team are still pushing ahead in spite of all that um, to try and solve a problem that you believe is worth solving. You said something quite interesting there, which is the young often see the Mark Zuckerbergs and they're like, oh, let's go do that. I want to make money, you know, I want to be. And actually, in a weird way, you'll, and I would agree with this, you know, the, the, the wise parental advice of, well, why don't you go get a proper job and, you know, build, you know, learn an industry or build up knowledge and contacts is, is often the more sensible route. And, and as you say, even for a startup, people who tend to come out of an industry where they've already built you know, they, maybe they got reasonably senior, so they got some really good relationships in that industry. Then they, when they come to do a startup, they've got a group of people that you know they can they can feed off who will help them raise money and stuff. So it's actually this sort of the way they throw out in the media all these young rich, young rich is kind of like they are so unusual. And you know, possibly we should be portraying a little bit more. I don't know. It's just not as sexy as exciting, is it? We're always fascinated with someone who's 21 who's made a million, isn't it? It's a sort of, um, you know, cultural obsession, I guess. But, you know, people would be wiser to go and cut their teeth in an industry. And then if they wanted to do a startup, understand the problems in that industry intimately, understand the people and then look to do it. I mean, effectively. Yeah. I think, you know, if if you're born in privilege... Um, and you're 21, then you have a massive advantage because access to capital is a lot easier. You know, um, you've got people who are lawyers, accountants, 
you know, so there's a, you know, your parents are probably surrounded by all those professional services that you can, like, if you've got a good idea, you can go and learn and, and get all that stuff for free or next to nothing and you're young and having a crack. So if you're in that space, there's definitely a huge advantage in, in the startup space. But if, if you're not, I mean, effectively, if you're paying for everything, then, you know, like you're learning the hard way because you, like I, I look at myself at, at 20, 21 and how much I didn't know, how much I thought I knew, I thought I knew bloody everything, but how much I didn't know and how many lessons I needed to learn through mistakes in order to get where I am. Like if you're doing that with someone else's money in a startup, those are expensive lessons to learn. If you're working in, in industry for a good manager, you know, like you're learning those lessons within within a business context and at the end of the week you're still getting paid your wage regardless of, you know, and you're not making massive mistakes that are that are breaking the business. What sector are you most bullish about at the moment? I'd, I'd probably say still fintech, to be quite honest with you. I mean, food's food's very exciting for us um, at the moment just because of the way that we're, um, we're structured and the, the value that we can add to that. Um, but, yeah, financial services is still still huge. There's still a lot of disruption to come through. You know, there's the classic, the money's in the money. So there's more money that's that gets poured into that. If you disrupt financial services, there's more money to be made. I mean, as a result of that, there's more people that are doing it as well. So there's more uh, competition, but there's still a lot of, you know, a lot of opportunities in fintech um, without doubt financial services. What's fintech going to look like in three or four or five years' time in the, in the sort of near to medium term? What advances can we expect? What are we going to be doing differently? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I'm probably not the expert to be telling you that. I, I, I more run the programs. But I think, you know, like, like you're seeing in the UK, the splintering off of um, you know, the, the growth and the emergence of the, the, um, the microbanks, the revolutes, um, there's going to be more of a convergence, which you're already seeing now. So, you know, like if you look at uh, Revolut and like the amount of different things that it's doing, you can buy stocks, you can buy commodities, you'll be able to buy insurance. It'll have a loyalty card um, associated with that. So, you know, like a lot of the a lot of people are disrupting one area of the fintech, I guess the financial services market, and then are, are broadening out. So, you know, like I think it's things like insurance is going to be a lot easier and a lot quicker and a lot simpler to buy insurance. Uh, yeah, like once you sign up to platforms, you know, the whole um, um, KYC process that, you know, takes a fair bit of time. Like I think that that's going to become far easier and you're going to be able to share your data a hell of a lot more. So that's almost like identity tech, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So, you know, sharing more and more of, of your knowledge to get you know, better products that are, you know, bespoke to you. When you're looking at a business and you're looking at a young businessman, a young entrepreneur, are there certain qualities that you look for? And are there certain, you know, red flags and you see him say something or her do something and you're like, no, that I don't like that? Yeah, for sure. There is. I mean, there's a number of things that we're looking for. So these are these are early stage startups you've got to remember. So these are people that are looking to to prove out a business model or a product or a technology. So they, they, they're looking for that repeatable and scalable business model. Um, so they're still very early stage. So the, the things that we're looking for uh, or that I, that I look for, that we, we look for are, you know, the founding team, like who are they, why are they doing this? You know, I mean, I ask a, a question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like sort of tongue in cheek, but it's, uh, you know, like you want to make sure that the, the founders of the, of the business have aligned, um, business goals. So, you know, you don't want some person who, 
who wants to make as much money as they can over the next two or three years and then get out versus someone that wants to build a business and keep it for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years. So, so things like that are, you know, like you, you want to pull that apart. You want to make sure that there's diversity in the founding team in terms of you know, background, thinking, personality, experiences and capabilities. So, yeah, you know, like it's pointless having, you know, three people that are all fantastic coders, um, you know, that have all grown up together that have similar experiences because they're all going to think in, in the same way. They're not going to necessarily think in different ways. And you want people that are, are thinking in different ways. You want the ability to be able to build the tech. You know, like if they, if, if the founding partners haven't been able to find a good CTO, I mean, it basically means that they haven't been able to go out and sell the idea to someone else. Uh, and you don't want to be paying money for them to be giving it to, you know, uh, a tech company to build the tech because they think, oh, I just build it once, but actually you never build a product once. You know, like you're constantly building and changing the product um, as you're going along. So, you know, all those sorts of things. So team for us is the number one most important thing that we're looking for. Um, and finally, you know, they, they need to be passionate about solving a problem um, and probably more than, more than passionate, they need to be obsessed by it. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, like we were speaking about before, you're going to have really difficult days. You're going to have days where hundreds of people are telling you, no, that you're crazy, it's not going to work. And regardless, I mean, you need to get up and keep going, keep striving, keep pushing, um, regardless of what obstacles and roadblocks and um, naysayers are in front of you, you need to be pushing ahead. So those are, those are the most important things. And then I, I guess the next thing we look for is yeah, like what, I mean, obviously, what traction and where the you know, where the business is going and how big the opportunity is and 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 things like timing. So is it is this a product or service that uh, yeah that the, the, the timing right and it, and it makes sense at the moment? Um, but outside of um, outside of that, yeah, the other thing that we're really looking for um, is yeah, like the ability of the founding team to to actually listen. That are they coachable? You know, um, we, we're going to put them on this three-month program. We're going to put them under a lot of stress. We're going to make them do things that sometimes they're not going to necessarily want to do, you know. But, yeah, like, do they listen? Are they coachable? Are they the type of people? We, we don't care whether, you know, we don't want people that are just going to say yes to everything that uh, people suggest, but we do want people that listen and, and think about things and then come back and say, well, I'm not going to do that, Richard, because of this, this, and this. I'm going to do this way. I mean, that's fine. But what you don't want is, you know, like people that um, that aren't coachable, that basically, you know, you're talking to them and you might as well be talking to the wall because they just nod and say, yes, yes, yes. And then they go off and do whatever whatever they're going to do anyway. So those are the those are really the main things that we're looking for. The team, you know, that, that passion to solve a problem, um, diversity, you know, good timing, good idea. Yep, sure. I mean, that's, that's important. Um, but, you know, coachability as well. You know, and the reason for that is like if you, if you think about a startup there they're solving a problem and they have an idea of where they're going to be in 12 or 18 months time. But the reality is, you know, no one doing a startup is ever going to end up where they think they're going to be in 12 or 18 months time. They're going to they're going to be somewhere completely different because the market's going to smash them over the head, you know, and they're going to end up a, a adjusting and 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 moving around based on, you know, market conditions. You know, there's all these things that they don't know about. And so it's the ability to continue to problem solve and continue to, to work through that maze to get to a point where you don't even know where it's going to be. You know, like that's, that's the skill of a startup. Yeah, I, I always find a funny thing when you were saying um, 
diversity. It's a bit like you need a team that's prepared to really challenge each other and be quite tough on each other. But it's a sort of, I mean, it relates me back to the army thing again, but it's almost like, do you think they need to be friends on any level? You know, do you think, do you think they need that sort of underlying, you know, friendship or anything or, or, Sometimes it's almost better that they're both just, well, they say there's two of them, they're both just fucking passionate about the problem and prepared to challenge each other and they both have different roles. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you and I, Andy, are passionate about something, then it's hard for us not to be friends. Okay. So I, I'd, I'd say that. I'd say that. I mean, the, the friendship is born out of that passion and, you know, the the desire to solve a problem and a similar work ethic. You have something in common. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah, those things mean that we'll, be, we'll become friends. Yeah, so I, I think you know, great startup teams, particularly early on, I mean, you know, they, they, are, they, they become good friends quite quickly. But, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessary. And then, I mean, as it scales and as it grows, like often, you know. Shit happens. People change and, yeah. Well, if you fail in your role, if my job's technology and yours is to raise money and I'm smashing it at the tech and you're not raising the money or vice versa, then all that happens is you lose respect for each other and friendship breaks down anyway. For sure. Thing. Yeah. 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 And, and as you're going along, like as you become more and more successful, like, and you take money on, I mean, the money that comes into the business is always going to want to hire the best possible person for the job. So the founding team... You know, like it's very rare that once you go through a series A, series B, that I'm the best possible person to continue to be the CEO of the company or the CTO. Again, because you care about the idea. You care about the idea more than your own ego, effectively. Yeah, you've exactly. got to always yeah, be, yeah. you know, you've almost got to reassert the idea all the time. And if you meet someone who's could do it better than you, say, right, you do it, mate. You look like you, do you it. could, yeah, yeah. you know, I'll make yeah. the tea. And, and some founders, some founders are aware of that. And for others, it's quite a shock, you know, and this is the classic, you know, the VCs have come and destroyed my company. Well, I mean, as soon as you start selling equity um, to to a, a VC, like their job is to make money. So they're going to do whatever it takes to make money. And if that means moving you aside or, you know, putting someone that's better than you into, into the role, then they will. Great stuff. Well, Richard, as we uh, close, we have two questions that we ask our guests. And the first of those questions I'm about to put to you now, and that is, what are you most excited about for the future of your business? The thing, I mean, the thing that I'm most excited about, I guess, is, you know, the world has changed dramatically over over the last sort of 12 months. I obviously don't have to tell that to, to anyone. Everyone's very, very aware of that. Um, and what's happening as a result of that is that, you know, everything's changing. Uh, and, and you know, business models are being massively disrupted. Large corporations, uh, you know, like um, there's that classic classic joke, you know, like who drove the digital transformation at your corporate? And, you know, there's A, the CEO, B, the CTO, C, COVID-19, you know, tick, tick the third. So, I mean, this has changed things, um, rapidly changed industries. And and as a result of that, there's there's more innovation. There's more people saying yes. You know, like 12 months ago, if you're sitting there, you know, as a startup or, you know, like looking at um, at helping a corporation, you know, like most people are just sitting there, the, a contract would come up, you just sign it and move on to the next year, move on to the next year. Now people are forced to really think outside the box. They're forced to do more with less, you know. They're forced to take calls. They're used to taking digital calls. So they're, they're going to listen to people sitting on the other side of the world that 
tell them that they think that they can help their business. So as a result of that, you know, like innovation and opportunity is going to be prevalent and there's going to be more and more of that. And that's that's where we sit. We we sit in a position where we link corporates with startups and we help large corporates on their innovation journey, not just with their, their external uh, yeah, the outside in innovation, which is grabbing startups and getting them to work on problems, but also like internally as well. So we do venture building. Um, we put growth hackers in their business to, to to help them digitally test products and solutions and um, and and, um, and services before entering the marketplace. And so, you know, even though the last twelve months, even for for us, has been quite difficult, like I see a huge growth in this area over the uh, over the next 12, 18, 24 months and beyond because a lot more people are, are taking the calls and saying, you know, like listening and, and hearing how you can help, you know, how we can help. So that's that's probably what excites me the most about our business. And if there was one thing in the world that you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, the, the distribution of wealth because it's it's become it's become terrible. But I, but I think it's um, it's positivity and and coming back to the truth, you know, like um, free thinking, free speech, people thinking for themselves, you know, and, and moving away from sort of fear and uh, you know, negativity and 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 all that sort of stuff. I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to see uh, people being a lot more positive, people being more educated, you know. Like, I mean, ten years ago, twenty years ago, when you stood up and and lied, you know, you people called you out for lying and said, "Well, that's that's rubbish," and you almost laughed out of out of the room. Whereas now we're we're far more accepting of that. So I'd like to see, I'd certainly like to see a leveling of the leveling of the playing field around you know, truth, honesty, um, but also you know, like, I mean, distribution of wealth is a major major problem in the world. Like um, there was an article in the Guardian last Wednesday. You know, Jeff Bezos made thirteen billion dollars in a day. Um, you know, Oxfam noted that you know, if he paid all of his eight hundred seventy five thousand employees you know, like over a hundred thousand dollar bonus. That he'd still be you know, worth the same amount as he was pre-COVID. I mean, that's that's disgusting. We we need to get into a situation where where we're better at distributing wealth across all across our community. Um, so that, those are probably the the areas. I mean, yes, I'm, I'm almost I'm almost saying solve world peace, aren't I? Solve world peace. Um, so it's 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 only a small problem, but yeah, you know, those those are the things that you know I, I guess most trouble me with a. The five-year-old daughter must trouble me about the. They're, about te- the- they're tearing capitalism apart. They they will te- they will be the end of capitalism if we don't fix them. Um, it's getting it's it, it's getting, you know, no one's coming up with much uh, better systems, but people are coming up with their own little ecosystems, aren't they? That can operate independently and um, yeah, something something will grow. It's a bit like in America. How did they legalize weed? Well, someone explained to me the wonderful thing about the American system is because of the federal and the local nature is that locally you can change the law and kind of do what you want, sort of, and then that can spread. Um, so actually, you know, it, there's an argument if we're going to see a new version of capitalism, it may it may even be born out of the very you know the very home of it um, in a way because they have a system where. You can do that. You can take an idea and grow it uh, effectively. You know, other systems it tend tend to not allow it. But a subject for another day, Andrew. A subject for another day. And uh, the other side of the coin is, in fact, that Amazon is really good. It is really um, good. On that, <laughs> on that note, uh, Richard, as we close, if people want to find out more about you, how would how do they go about doing that? 
just ring Andy Howry and ask. No, um, you, you can uh, jump on startupbootcamp.org or startupbootcamp.com.au. Um, they can they can find us there. Great or, stuff. Or ring up Andy Howry, obviously. Or ring up. Okay. Great stuff. Richard Selm, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back with another show very soon. So, dear listener, that would normally mark the end of the show here on Business Without However, our producer, Dee, has observed that there's always so much of our chats with guests, which we don't end up including in the show. Chat which may be less about business, but nevertheless, well worth a listen. So, in the light of his epiphany, we thought we'd try something new by adding a brand new chapter to the show. Some might call it the outtakes, but as Andy likes to say, here's less business and more Like, I'm making a couple of investments at the moment, and the KYC is just doing my head in. And, like, how many times do you have to go through the same process of proving that you're you? And if you could just go, you know, if there was an app that goes, you are you, and you could just click on the app and go, tell these people that I'm me. You know, ironically, Dom, there is. this. save the world. I know, there's there's loads of these. It's almost like there's, there's a bunch of them, because we try and we test them a bunch. There's like, you know... I can't even remember, but there's three or four around the world that will do certain territories, and you can you could sign up to it, Dom, so you would be able to do it. But then, then you've got to hope that the company that you're using is going to use that app and respect it. Well, they don't, because a lot of them are legal firms, and they're, with all due respect, Andy, totally backward. And you know, the law is awful because they all establish their own little monopolies, and and then and it doesn't suit them to change because that their little monopoly of you know, whatever it is, checking ID, that means, you know, several hundred pounds worth of fees. And uh, why change it? Because you can just click an app. And everyone inter- also everyone interprets the rules differently. All the banks take a slightly different view. Well, that too. I, I love Tom always tells me this, you know, like um, they'll put a stop, you know, like a stop on a five pound transaction that's been going through every single month for, you know, some art or creative software that, he, you know, software as a service that he's been buying since, you know, for the last six months or 12 months. Um, you know, they'll just put a stop. They won't tell him. And then when they go to use the service, it's, you know, it, it's not there and available for him. And then, you know, 10,000 pounds or 15,000 pounds worth of server equipment for Apple in um, in Egypt, you know, like goes through and no one questions it. So, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of uh, work to be done, you know, in that space. Yeah. The one that I had this the other day, um, I've all got junior ISAs for my kids. So that's like a junior stockbroker account with a stockbroker. And we had to go through this huge ID process to open them each one up and prove that they were them. And then when they were turned 18, they demanded that they go through the ID process again. And you're like, they've already done it two years ago. And then the, uh, the broker's going, yeah, and they need to send us a utility bill in their name. And I'm like, what kid age 18 has a utility bill in his own name. And what's more, even if he did, you know, have paid for the utility in his own name, what kid still gets actual bills through the post? It's all done, you know, through an app anyway. You know, it's, 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 no, it's a bugger. It's a bugger and everything's gone digital and it's sort of, you know, how do you prove someone's address now? Yeah, they say send us a bank statement and you're like, 
And okay, I'll email you the bank statement. No, you have to send us the bank statement. Well, will you accept a printout? Because we just get the bank statements digitally. No, you have to send the physical bank statement. So then you've got to contact the bank and say, will you send me a physical bank statement? So then you've got to fee- pay a fee to the bank. Ten pounds. Good luck trying to get hold of a bank in COVID. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, anyway, that's my little rant. Well, you know where the rules come from. I don't know if you know where they come from. I'm sure we may have met. It comes from... Must after... be the European Commission. Must be Europe. No, it's it? um, after, so nine, it's after 9-11. After 9-11... The Americans say, we want to know names and addresses of any potential terrorists, fraudsters or whatever. So they required countries that trade with them to enact laws to basically start holding. So professionals and people had to hold proof of address and proof of physical ID when they deal with them. And the UK did it. I mean, Australia and New Zealand, I notice, have managed to ignore this for fucking ages and have only just started to do it. So I've spent the last 15 years expending these rules to Australians telling me what a crock of shite that is. But yeah, it's 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 really a matter that it, when they when you know, if they're trying to find a terrorist, they can turn up at your office and prove that, well, he lived here six months ago. You know, let's go raid the place. Do you know what I mean? It's the sort of, you know, trying to track it down. But it's... Um, there are there are much easier ways to track down terrorists... I know. ...than, than p- putting these unnecessary burdens on people who've never had anything to do with terrorism. Well, in I life, agree, because I always think they're like... They must be like, oh, well, you know, follow the money or, you know, all right, we'll, we'll have to have the IDs. But it's like, well, if you want a money launder, you know, get get a strip club. Frankly, do you know what I mean? It's like you know, go have a chat to those people. You know, it's it's pretty obvious that the businesses, if you think about it, that are easy to launder and are very difficult to launder. Anyway, let's talk about your time uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, you were a an army reserve major in 2010 in command of a hundred and. 117. Why 117 men? Why such a specific number? Uh, just that's just how it rolled out. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I thought I thought that might be like the standard size of a regiment or something. No, it's a it's a and, it's a company. It's called yeah, an infantry company. Oh, okay. But, yeah, it's okay. around about 120, 130. Yeah. Okay, so in one company it might be 125, yeah. and another it might be 118. Yeah. And okay, I've got you. And how how long were you out there for? What did you learn from that? How terrifying was it? What was it like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was pretty old. Like I was, you know. It, Sort of getting to my late thirties, I I, um, I went to university in Australia, and um, uh, when I um, when I went to university, I moved into a residential college, and I was with a bunch of guys in that residential college that originally uh, yeah went off went off to join the army reserve, and at the time I had you know, hair down to my shoulders and was surfing and all the rest of that sort of stuff, so I went off and 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 this is in the early nineties where you know I mean. Um, around about the same time that you know, British prime ministers were saying, you know, they would go whole generations without there being any wars and all that sort of stuff. So, um, it, but anyway, so I, I joined the the uh, the army reserve in Australia and um, quite enjoyed it. Kept me fit. There was tax free beer. Um, lots of yeah, that was a that was a big draw card. The tax free beer. Um, Why does the army get tax free beer? Well, it was in Australia at the time. It was in Australia at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was there was. Um, like quite a few advantages and I'd stayed involved. Yeah. Like I enjoyed it, joined the camaraderie. Actually the, I went through officer training. So the, you know, the management, uh, management tools and lessons that I would, I'd learned to, um, um, had served me very well in my, you know, civilian life, in my business life and things like that. Um, and you know, I effectively got millions of dollars worth of leadership training. And so when I moved to the UK, I continued to, to continue to serve firstly um, as an attachment, as an attachee, like as an uh, Australian soldier or Australian officer serving with the British reserves and then um, um, transferred across into the British army. Cause I, I stayed in the UK for 
for a bit too long. And so um, I'd gone through, I mean, effectively I'd, be, I'd been involved in a, you know, like a cricket club or a, or a football club for 10, 15 years and been turning up to Tuesdays and Thursday night training um, but never played a game. So like there was a part of me that sort of wanted to play a game. And so when they when they sort of turned around and said, you know, do you want to do you want to head off? Had a chat to my wife. I mean, it's, it's certainly a lot harder on her than probably anyone else. Um, that's for sure. I, I didn't realise it at the time. It's probably retrospective. No, she might have wanted it. Sorry, yeah, maybe. <laughs> she insured <laughs> me to the hilt and, yeah, off she cracks. No, but, it, I mean, it certainly was a, a hell of a lot harder for her than anyone else, I think, you know, because, I mean, I know when I'm in danger, when I'm not and all the rest of that sort of stuff. She's just sitting there watching the news every night. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it is a lot harder for them. And so, yeah, when the opportunity arose, I, I sort of said, yes, I'd, you know, like I'd love to do this. I'd love to test myself. I'd love to to see whether I can, you know, whether I can, whether I can perform. How long were you out there for? Um, so for six, seven months, seven months. Yep. Did you get shot at? Uh, we, we got, um, yeah, we got ID'd a couple of times and things like that. So yeah. Do you believe in? I mean, what? I don't even know what it what it's about. I mean, what is the sort of underlying thing that's going on? Because we're still are we still in Afghanistan? I think we are, aren't we? We still got troops there and stuff. I don't even know. No, because of COVID, they've all come home. Have they? Is that no, you I joking? It <laughs> <laughs> is it? It's about sort of upholding some sort of trying to keep democracy upheld by training up armies and troops you know is it a sort of cold war battle i don't i don't what was it about in 2010 what were we doing there then yeah i mean then it was yeah like there was a resurgence of the the taliban i mean 2009 was probably the the worst year for well it was the worst year for the british army yeah, like over 100 100 british soldiers um died in 2009 so it was really about regaining um and when President Obama came in, like he was thinking about the decision. So should we withdraw and turn it into, uh, you know, like a counterinsurgency, opera, uh, sorry, um, like move away from a counterinsurgency and protecting the population um, and, you know, move it back to, to to basically, you know, like focusing on Al-Qaeda and, and having strike teams that, that basically um, sort out and killed, you know. Strategically like the, trying to the, kill the, the terrorists, the, yeah, the terrorists. Um, and he made the decision to surge and you know, like and try to regain peace. So at that stage, it's it's trying to prevent a failed state, trying to prevent a vacuum. I mean, you saw what happened. He decided to pull troops out of Iraq, and you saw what happened there with the ISIS, you know, um, taking over half the country and American troops having to come back in and help, you know, help clear it out. So it was really, you know, to prevent a vacuum, to prevent a, a failed state from occurring. I mean, that's that's the reason why people are still there. Is you know, I mean. They don't want to, you know, like you don't want to have another Somalia in um, in the Middle East. Mm. You allow allow um, crazy groups to gain control, you know, effectively because there isn't there isn't a sort of stable central um, central control over the cu- country, sort of thing. It's that it's that we're, we're, while there's a vacuum, is there a duty of countries that can afford to do so, European, British, American, whatever, to to put in a sort of stru- you know some sort of framework to keep the country functioning effectively and try and build up their natural resources. And I mean, it, it's um, it, it it we think it works, I guess, sort of. It's it's sort of it's it's devil the do, devil you don't, but it's better than doing nothing, is it? It's that kind of thing. Yeah, I think. I mean, you've often heard that the the thing that changes society more than anything else is educating women, you know? And now, 
there's been 20 years where, you know, women, like previously, if you looked what what was happening in Afghanistan prior to, you know, September 11 and 2001 and, um, and the American... Americans first going in there and then all the NATO countries following, you know, like you've now had 20 years of females being educated, going to schools. Um, while we were there, you know, the uh, officer, a female officer cadet, uh, officer training school was established. So, you know, females now have, have opportunities that they never had, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago. So, it's, I mean, even it's going to be harder for the vacuum to turn back into what it was before. Because, you know, like a whole generation of, of females have been educated in the country. They're not going to allow that. You know, they've, they've established business, they've set up businesses, they've, you know, and so, so hopefully that, that makes a big difference in the country. Given control of their, yeah, given control of their reproductive system so they're not, you know, I mean, effectively treated like a, like a farm animal or something like, and they're just on a constant conveyor belt of producing kids. You do those two things and, you know, society changes, you know. Um, it becomes far more wealthier. It's the the best way of transforming a, a society, those two things. It's been proven time and time again. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without <laughs> Until then, from Andy Uri and me, Dominic Frisby, it's cheerio. Cheerio.